in preparation for our sermon, let us read together Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in, the labor, and in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was cut up to heaven and his throne, to God, up to please. And her child was cut up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out. With him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives that did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for her time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth, of his mouth like a flood after the, the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth had the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. 
and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Word of the Lord. Let us now turn our Bibles to Exodus, Exodus 1, verses 8 through 14, our text of today. Exodus 1, from verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of, in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, all the service in which they made them serve with rigor. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the most tyrannical regime that you know? Some of you might answer Nazi Germany, others the Soviet Union, some others the Chinese Communist Party. And it is true. All those, those regimes have killed or caused the death of tens of millions of people. But have you thought about Egypt, the Egypt of the Pharaoh? that time embarked on a project of extermination of the church. If it had succeeded, that plan would have sealed the eternal doom of the entire human race from that generation forward. Why? Because the messianic line would have been exterminated, annihilated, 
and so Jesus would have not come. Fortunately, our Heavenly Father came to his people's rescue. He used the genocidal plans of Pharaoh to bless the church. My assignment today, therefore, is to proclaim the gospel of this triune God from this spirit-inspired historical account of how God blesses people through persecution in Egypt. The theme summarizing this gospel proclamation is Yahweh uses persecution to bless the church in Egypt. Yahweh uses persecution to bless the church in Egypt. Under this theme, we will see three points. First, we have the origins of the persecution, then the intensity of the persecution, and finally, God's blessing through the persecution. The origins of the persecution, the intensity of the persecution, and God's blessing through the persecution. Our first point, the origin of the persecution. Our text starts with a now, which marks a new section in the history of God's people. A new era was starting. Changes were going to happen. Here, unfortunately, the changes were for the worse. We read that the new king did not know Joseph. What does it mean? It does not mean that the new king did not have an intellectual knowledge of Joseph the Great. Why was Joseph so great? Because he was the savior of Egypt. He was the one who gave Pharaoh so much prestige and power when he saved Egypt from the famine. It is at that time that Pharaoh could collect all the lands of Egypt, have them under his control. No, this king did not want to acknowledge the blessings that God had brought to Egypt through Joseph. Whereas the previous administrations had treated the Israelites hospitably because of Joseph, the new king had a wicked eye toward God's people. This new pharaoh was ungrateful. He was not only ungrateful, he was also anxious. Why was he anxious? Because the Israelites' population was growing exponentially in a miraculous manner. In Genesis, some other neighbors of the patriarchs tried to join them in order to share in their blessings. But this Pharaoh wanted none of that mixing. He had another more cunning and wicked plan. He wanted to control the Israelite population and to be able to exploit it at low cost. Just like today, people of God back then were very dynamic and productive. Most probably, 
just like today, they were an important part of the Egyptian economy. Pharaoh lusted after their wealth and productivity, but at the same time, he, ha he hated them. He wanted to have a cheap labor force which could never rebel. So the plan that he found was to enslave them. And how did he realize his plan? We read, he said to his people, and you can picture the scene in your mind, you can imagine Pharaoh in a room with his advisors and underlings saying, wow, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. In Hebrew, the way Pharaoh refers to the Israelites is already sadly pejorative. He could have said the sons of Israel, but he said the people of the sons of Israel. In fact, he was saying something like those Gentiles, those foreigners, they are growing too fast. In verse 10, Pharaoh gives his plan of action. Pharaoh says, let us deal shrewdly with these foreigners. Pharaoh is very cunning. So he does not speak explicitly about his intentions. But everyone around him could understand what he meant when he says, let them multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemy and fight against us and escape from the land. His advisors understood that he meant, see, these guys, or he said, please, see guys, this is a lifetime opportunity. These foreigners are increasing so fast. They may soon take our place if we don't do, if we don't do anything about it. But we can exploit them, you know, and enrich two gold, and reach two birds with one stone. We can make them work very hard for Egypt to become more powerful ourselves, while at the, st the same time stopping them from increasing in number. What do you think? And you can imagine all the greedy and lustful hearts nodding, oh yeah, yes, yes, this is a great plan, let us do it. But there is much irony in these accounts of Pharaoh's schemes. First, Pharaoh fears that if the Israelites become powerful enough, they will seek to leave Egypt. If they leave, they will cause Egypt to lose a good part of its productivity and wealth. But he does not realize that making life hard for them is what we crystallize the desire to leave the land. He does not realize that his schemings will prompt God, the Heavenly Father, to intervene to set them free. Pharaoh means it for evil, but God means it for good. Just like Pharaoh, the devil and his allies the system of this world and our flesh seek to tyrannize us through sins, temptations, and sufferings. 
The goal of that tyranny is to compel us to abandon God. But wise and mean to destroy us through temptations, God means to save us through testing. So maybe you are going through great sufferings and temptations, but know with great certitude that our Heavenly Father is working to confirm your faith and make you more and more yearn for Jesus Christ's return. Another irony is that when Pharaoh bent his mind to think about what is good for Egypt, he thought about destroying God's people. But when Joseph, at his time, bent his mind to think about what was good for Egypt, he saved a multitude and made Pharaoh the honor of almost all the lands of Egypt. So when we compare Joseph and Pharaoh, we realize how crude, how ungrateful Pharaoh was. And this is the heart of fallen man. Fallen man is ungrateful to the core. People manifest such ungratefulness even to, please, people manifested such ungratefulness even toward the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Think with me for a while. The creator of all things accepted the humiliation of the incarnation. He came to his people. He did only good, healing the sick, raising the dead. And what did he receive in return? He received crucifixion. Think about the current situation of the church in Canadian society. Without the true church, Canada, uh, without the true church and all her benefits, Canada would have been a frozen, uninviting wasteland. But today, the state, the world and the state point the finger at God and accuse the Christians of being the backward, hateful, bigoted people who prevent others from experiencing paradise on earth. There is another irony. Pharaoh and his advisors think that they are wise. Maybe from the short-sighted perspective of fallen men, they are wise. But from the divine perspective, they are very stupid. Like many God-haters today, Pharaoh does not realize that more people means more glory to God and more wealth. He also fails to realize that he's entering a heavyweight boxing match against an invincible foe, El Shaddai, the Almighty himself. The Almighty says, be fruitful and multiply, but Pharaoh says, be fruitless and die and decrease. The Almighty says, messianic redemption of the church for my glory, and Pharaoh says, damnation of the messianic line. Who is going to win? God, the invincible champion, or little puny Pharaoh, 
the devil's henchmen. Who is going to win? Of course, we know God will win. He always does. Let us dwell a bit longer on this opposition between God and Pharaoh. This contest is the same contest that started in the Garden of Eden. It is the contest between God and the devil, between the seed of the woman and the dragon, as we read in Revelation 12. It repeatedly appears in Scripture because there is a natural enmity between Christ and the devil. The devil's main goal has always been to prevent the coming of Christ by exterminating the church. Remember, for example, in the Old Testament, when Amalek pounced upon God's people in the wilderness. Remember when Haman wanted to exterminate the church in the time of Esther. In all those instances, the dragon was trying to eat the seed of the woman. The devil hates us simply because we are the rest, the remainder of the offspring of the woman, because we are the body of Christ. And now that he can no longer persecute Jesus because Christ is ascended to heaven, he uses the world and our flesh to avenge himself on us. Just as we read in Revelation 12, after the, the child was taken to heaven, he made war on the woman and the rest of her seed. And such a war manifests itself in several ways nowadays. For example, it manifests itself through the promotion of abortion or through the shaming of Christian families because they have many children. But let us not embrace those lies. Less people is not what will save the planet, but a more, but more numerous and Christ-exalting people, a stronger church will save the planet. With this, we, we reach the end of our first point. We saw in our first point that the church enslavement came from the ungratefulness and greediness of Pharaoh. Then we saw that behind Pharaoh was the devil. Finally, we saw that the Pharaoh's hatred toward God's people was a manifestation of the devil's hatred toward Christ and the church. Now, let us focus on the intensity of Pharaoh's hatred. How deep, how sour, acidic was that hatred of Pharaoh toward the church? That will be the object of our second point. The intensity of the persecution. How intense was the persecution? Let us see. We read in verse 11 
Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom, and Hamses. So, greedy Pharaoh and his advisors decide to persecute the church. And most of the Egyptians are on board with it. How did they carry out the persecution? They appointed taskmaster over God's people. Almost overnight, the people of God who were previously free now had slave drivers over them. The goal was to humiliate and make their lives bitter with continuous back-breaking jobs. Imagine the situation with me for a while. Maybe many of God's people who were physically weak died because of the difficult conditions. And some who were strong had their health ruined. Husbands and wives were separated. And the people no longer had enough time to care for their own businesses. And as a result, extreme poverty among God's people was rampant. There is also, there is here a sad irony. Pharaoh was draining the sweat and blood of God's people to build Egypt's infrastructures. Some of those cities that they built were, in fact, military fortresses. So Pharaoh compelled God's people to provide the supplies and armies he needed to enslave them. The goal of Pharaoh was not only to break their backs, but also to break their spirit, to drive away from them any hope of freedom. Unfortunately for Pharaoh, the violent persecution did not have its expected effect. The more, the more Egyptian persecuted the people of God, the more they increased in number. Not only did they increase, but they spread abroad, meaning that they started becoming numerous even outside of their original region, Goshen. This extraordinary spreading certainly did alarm the Egyptians. You can imagine the anxiety of Pharaoh's and his advisors. You can imagine that that anxiety reached the roof. The Egyptian population that supported the, uh, the persecution also panicked when they realized that it was not reaching the expected goal. But how did, what did that do? Instead of stopping the persecution and repenting, the Egyptians just hated God's people even more and increased the violence of their persecution. So they became ruthless and violent and as violent as possible toward God's people. The, the Egyptians assigned them particularly to the process of brick making. Even today, despite the technological advances, brick making from clay is an extremely demanding job. Imagine 
God's people in Egypt having to make bricks. They had to prepare the clay, lift heavy loads of bricks, and endure the heat of the sun and the heat of the kiln. Please, during this week, you can watch on internet some documentaries on brick making in Pakistan and India, and you will have a visual of what I am speaking about. It's very difficult. God's people had to do grueling jobs with many beatings and little food. So the church situation in Egypt was dire. God's people needed him to do something, to intervene, to save them. God detests those who treat his image bearers in this way. Even when those are pharaohs, despite all their authority and power, Christ has brought us body and soul both in life and in death with his precious blood as we confess in Lord's Day 1. We belong to Christ. We do not belong to Pharaoh's. What Pharaoh was doing here was an accursed, blatant usurpation of authority. In acting that way, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were just imitating their father, the devil, the dragon. Satan is the father of all those who usurp or subvert the authority of Christ over the church. All governments or authority structures which want to persecute the church who want in, and compel in this way the church to worship in a manner contrary to God's word or who wants to usurp the authority of Christ over the church set themselves on the path of Pharaoh, the path of the Antichrist, the path of the devil. As church, we must resist such usurpation because we do not belong to the Pharaohs, but we belong to Christ alone. We cannot have two masters. Either we are Christ and we serve him, or we belong to the devil. All opposition to the lordship of Christ alone is therefore diabolical. Such opposition can only result in what? In slavery, a mortal one, slavery to the devil. So we must all be certain that if we refuse to be slave of Christ, we will be slave of the devil. But we must not fool ourselves. The devil's slavery does not always manifest itself violently with gruesome exploitation and backbreaking labor like the slavery in Egypt. The devil can also bind us in golden chains such as entertainment, prosperity, great ease of life, and all the cravings and, addiction that, and addictions that come with it. In brief, anything that turns us, turns us away from the true worship of God can be an, an instrument of the devil to enslave us, can be another pharaoh in our lives. So, how intense was the persecution? It was extremely cruel. Pharaoh wanted to break the spirit 
of God's people. But the persecution did not achieve its goal. Why did it not achieve its goal? The answer is the object of our third and final point. Our third and final point, God's blessing in the persecution. Why did Pharaoh's persecution fail? It failed because of God's blessing. Let us read together verse 12. There we read, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Notice in verse 12 the parallelism between the intensity of the persecution on one side and the church growth on another. God was growing the Israelite population to the extent of the persecution. More persecutions meant more people. Notice also the echo of be fruitful and multiply from Genesis in the world in the word multiply and spread abroad. Let us read to better understand. Let us read um, Genesis 28 verse 14. Genesis 28 verse 14. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, in our text, had started the fulfillment of the messianic patriarchal promises. And no one, be he even the mightiest man on earth, or Satan himself, could stop him. God was intervening supernaturally among his people to bring forth the Messiah and bless his church. Pharaoh did not incorporate God's reaction in his plans. Let's face it, Pharaoh was not stupid. Intellectually speaking, his plan was good enough to cause a progressive decrease in God's people, separating families, making people work to death, making their life bitter and stressful. All those things in normal circumstances decrease populations. But God, the Almighty, could not allow Pharaoh to challenge his plan successfully. So for the glory of his name and to honor the promise he made to the patriarchs in Genesis 28, 14, as we just read, to honor those promises, God blessed his church by multiplying them. God's blessing does not mean that the situation was 
pleasant for the Israelite. You could not have found an Israelite saying, oh, this slavery is very good because God is multiplying us. No, you would have not heard something like that. But any Israelite who had the eyes of faith would have seen that there is hope, that God will not allow the Egyptians to extinguish their hope of a promised land, our hope of a Messiah. What do we see in redemptive history? Over and over again, we see God increasing His church through persecution. Do you remember, for example, what happened in the book of Acts after Pentecost? The church started growing. Then the Jewish religious establishment started persecuting Christians. And they dispersed the people of God. So those persecuted Christians fled everywhere. And why fleeing, they evangelized. As a result, the church started mushrooming in many other areas outside of Jerusalem and Judea. And in this way, the Great Commission was reaching a higher level. Think also with me about what happened in Europe after the Reformation. Many Christians were persecuted in Europe. As a result, they fled and came to North America. Thus, for many decades, the church in North America was the most vibrant church worldwide. And most importantly, this pattern of persecution and blessing happened at the cross. What happened at the cross? There, the rulers of this world and the devil thought that they were winning when they were crucifying Christ. But to their great dismay, Christ was triumphing over them, humiliating them publicly and canceling the ordinance of condemnation that stood against us. Hallelujah. Glory be to God, who is able always to bring light out of darknesses. So what do we learn? We must know for sure that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. God is neither sleeping, sleeping please, nor slumbering. He looks from heaven and laughs to scorn those who plot against his people. There is a splendid future for God's people. Remember, let us remember this truth when we meditate on the church's future. Remember it also when you suffer for Christ's sake. When people hate you and seek to destroy you because you are a Christian. When your flesh, the devil, and the system of this world tempts you. And even when you are sick, simply because you are still living in this present Egypt. Remember, remember that the same God who used persecution to bless his people in Egypt we use your sufferings to strengthen you, to strengthen your faith, and to make you more and more heavenly-minded. To give you, we use those sufferings to give you a greater hope, just as it is written, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. And again, 
for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen.